feeling a little emotional already just, just from the worship. You know, we, uh, as Greg said, we were at the men's retreat. A number of us were at the men's retreat uh, last weekend. The theme of the retreat was giving God gratitude, especially giving God gratitude uh, when things are hard and, um, and that there's a tremendous benefit to our souls when we give God thanks, no matter what the circumstances are. So I want to start out by giving thanks for every single one of you this morning. Because every single one of you is precious to God. And every single one of you is precious to me. Every single one of you is precious to Jeff. I want to give God gratitude for Toby's message last week. Because uh, she just such the saint. Toby is such the lady. And she did such a fantastic job. Give God gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you go to Asia, which I go to Asia, I've been to Asia 35 times now, you find out that the best preachers are ladies. <laughs> Don't know why that is, but it just, they just like pump, they're fired up. So, all right, well, we're going to look at a, a passage today. It's probably the most familiar passage to all of you, but I'm going to start my message this morning. I'm going to begin, uh, introduce my message by posing a few questions to you. And then I'm going to give you the answer to the questions, and then I'm going to illustrate the answer to the questions that I asked from the passage that we will be studying this morning. So here are the questions. Probably couldn't be any more uh, critical questions that I could ask or we could ask ourselves. But what is your greatest need this morning, or what is my greatest need this morning? What would be or what is more important than anything else? What is the highest goal that you or I can attain to in this life? And what would be your greatest discovery? Now, before you put the next slide up, just think about those questions. What would be the highest goal in our life? What would be the highest thing that we could attain to? Now the answer. The answer is that you would possess a true revelation of God because what you think about God is more important than anything else in your life. And Paul writes this in his letter to the Ephesians, a famous, his famous prayer is probably his most famous prayer that he prays in any of his epistles uh, when he prays for the Ephesians that you would be given... I would be given, they would be given, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. So the prayer is similar to what David wrote in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing, God, I've desired that I might behold your beauty. The greatest thing that we could discover in life is discover more of God. And your whole life works according to how you see God, how you view God. Everything goes better. The higher view you have of God, the more love for God you'll carry, the more obedience you'll give God. So I write here, in other words, that the lights would turn on in your life and in my life, and that you and I would receive a life-changing and glorious revelation of God 
giving you a great understanding, a high view, a huge awareness of who God is, that what you really think about God corresponds as nearly as possible to what God is truly like. This is the single most important fact about life. You and God, God and you. Who is this God that we serve? He's more than just our savior. God's more than just the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's more than the maker of the universe. God is so multidimensional. He is so amazing. He is so glorious. He is so beautiful that I am convinced that we will spend all eternity finding out more and more glorious things about God, even while we're there. It's not like we're going to get there and go, oh, this is what God's like. It's going to be like, oh, i just beginning to see what God's like, and it's going to go on and on, it's going to build, and it's going to multiply. And so what you think about God, when God's name pops into your head, is the most important thing about you. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning is going to do this better than anything that I can think of in the New Testament in revealing to us what God is like. So there's a song. I, I'm not sure who wrote it. I know Michael W. Smith sang it, but it went, went along the, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. You know that song? Yeah. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you, Lord, this morning. Like this morning can be life-changing for some of you. That God would turn the lights on. Did you know that the lights went out at the football game on Friday night with six minutes to go? The entire football field went black. And if you would have walked into the stadium, into the, into the Breaker Stadium for the football game to pick somebody up, it was completely dark. And you wouldn't be able to hardly see anything. And then the lights came back on, and then you would see who you needed to pick up, and you would see what was going on on the field. A revelation of God is the lights turn on. I'm asking God that the lights would turn on. I'm asking God the lights would turn on starting in my heart. Because I want to know him more. And I want to love him more. And I want to walk closer to him. And I want to see you and see me walk together with God with a greater revelation of God than we've ever known. That God is more glorious, more amazing, more fantastic, more beautiful, more remarkable, more extraordinary than we ever imagined. Amen. That we could love God and we could worship God. I love that second song when we were all clapping and shouting. You know, I watched the... I watched the, uh, the Dodger Brewer game yesterday. I almost felt guilty because I knew I was preaching this morning. And I said, God, I should be like looking at my notes more, but I wanted to watch that game. And, and you know, whenever Milwaukee was at the Milwaukee Stadium, they were cheering. And you've heard me say this many times. God, we could just, you know, if, if we cheer for LeBron James or, or, we, or we cheer for some great baseball player or some great football player, why don't we cheer like that for God? I'm not talking about just being a Pentecostal, and I love Pentecostalism. I love charismaticism. I love fundamentalism. I love every ism that's a part of the church. I love the whole church. I'm as happy in a Baptist church as I am in an Assembly of God church. I'm as happy as I am in this church as I am over at VCC. 
I am happy in any kind of church because the people of God are there. And we love God together and we join together. You know what? I, I, the, the thing I'll take away from the men's retreat, uh, Ben Patterson, the uh, chaplain from Westmont, was the speaker. And he said, you know, you shouldn't ask the question when you leave church, did you like the service? The question should be, did God like the service? Huh? We're here for God, everybody. We're not here for ourselves. We're here to love him. We have one life to live, to love God, walk with God. This parable we're going to look at is a stunner. This parable is so beautiful. It is so absolutely amazing to look at it. What I'd like to do first is, uh, you know, there's been a lot of books written about the parable of the prodigal son. That's going to be our passage today. There's been great sermons recorded, but perhaps the world's greatest painting is a depiction of the prodigal son. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt, the great Dutch Renaissance painter. And I've just taken part of the painting because I wanted to highlight the father and the son here in Rembrandt's. This painting hangs in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. It is considered by some, as I said, by some art critics as the single greatest picture ever painted. And you can get a feel for the parable in looking at the painting. I want you to look at the depiction that Rembrandt gives the father's face. This father who is receiving back his son. I want you to notice the contrast between the light and the darkness to the side. And really the full picture, it's, it's a bigger picture, there's two other characters in it. But I wanted to give you a picture of just the father and the son here uh, with the biggest possible feature I could. Notice the the tenderness and the warmth that Rembrandt was able to get in the father's face, in the warmness that he has towards his son that's failed so miserably, and then notice the son on his knees, threadbare clothes, head practically shaven, his head laying against the father's chest. Do you ever want to know what God's like? Just take a look at that picture. Take a look at the tenderness of the father holding his boy, who was completely failed, as bad, about as bad as you can fail. And if you're here and you're, you failed in life and every single one of your hands should go up, I want you to know this is how God feels about you. Just like Rembrandt painted this beautiful, amazing, this, is, this thing imparts so much to us as we look at it. But I'm not here to give you an uh, art lesson. I'd have Gil come up here and give you an art lesson if I was going to do that. But let's look at our parable. And um, this is a parable that if I could speak for three months on just this parable, I would, because that's about what it would take. It would take about 12 Sundays to give this parable justice, to really teach it well, for you really to understand it. So I'm going to... Uh, uh, I'm not able to give you everything that I'd like to say about, the, about this parable. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through it for us. And I'm going to comment on each section that we read through. Because I can't give a, an extensive teaching at all because we don't have time. And then I'll give some application when I'm over. 
Jesus' most famous parable. It is the most well-known of all his parables. Probably coming in second would be the Good Samaritan. But let's start. Uh, it's in the 15th chapter of, um, of Luke. And of course, uh, Toby last week gave us the two of the three parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And now this is the parable of the lost prodigal son. But this is how it all starts. And Jesus said, there was a certain man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate now before you die. And he divided his wealth between them. Now, just a few things to point out. Basically, what the son is, the, the son could not be more disrespectful to his father. There's no way he could be ruder to his father than he is right now. Basically, what he's saying to his father is, I just wish you were dead. I want my money now. Like, he is so terrible to his dad. And you'll notice here there is no response from the dad whatsoever. There's no response. In the, in the Middle East, if you, in the Middle East today, if a son would say that to his father, he wouldn't get out of the house alive probably right now. Because in that culture, and that's the same culture it was back then, that's, a son did not treat his father like this with the greatest disrespect. And notice that when he divided uh, the inheritance, he divided it between them both. In other words, the older son and the younger son both received inheritance. And in that day, the older son would have gotten twice what the younger son got. But the younger son got a substantial amount because this father is a wealthy landowner. He's a wealthy uh, farmer. Next uh, section of verses. And a few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant country and there squandered his fortune in reckless and loose living. Anybody been there? <laughs> oh, I saw more hands than I expected. <laughs> about, this, about the time that his money ran out, a severe famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. Now, you got a substantial amount of money. How many of you know that like, when you go out there and you go party and you're a little debauched out there, it goes pretty fast? Yeah, and then you wonder, like, what did I do? And pretty soon this guy is out of all of his inheritance and he's beginning to essentially starve, verse 15. And he persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into the fields to feed swine. And you know that for a Jew, pigs are unclean. That's the worst thing and worst job that he possibly could have had. But that was the only job he could find. And he persuaded a farmer to give him the most menial possible employment that he could get. And while he was feeding the swine, he was longing to fill his stomach with what the swine ate. But no one gave him anything. How many of you know that God will take us to that lowest place in life to where you've got nowhere else to go? You are on your face. There are no answers. There's no help. There is absolutely nothing. How many of you know the joy of being there? 
How many of you know that sometimes the only way God can reach you is when you hit rock bottom? Now, they'll tell you in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's the only way that you begin a new life is when you hit rock bottom. But in our spiritual life, the same is true. Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom. And some of you here, I know your stories, you've hit rock bottom. And then God came, and we're going to see just exactly the perfect picture of what God does. Next section, please. And coming to his senses, this younger son said, how many of my father's servants have plenty to eat? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Now, I want you to notice, I don't believe that this is the greatest of all repentance here. I don't think this is so contrite. I think basically what's happened here, he's not saying, you know, that, that God, I've, I am so sorry, I'm so sorry that I have done this to my father, I've wasted my money, God, I'm so sorry that I've, that I've sinned against you. In that sense, he's basically saying, I'm really hungry and I need to go home. <laughs> and I'm going to get fed there. That's basically, it's, so it's not a great repentance, as you might expect. It's more of a, I am needy and I need to go home and hopefully my father will receive me back. So this isn't like, a revelation of his sinfulness. This is more like I've got no place else to go. I'm like, I'm, I'm just dying out here. Okay. And he got up and he went to his father. Uh, this is a tough one to read. This is, this is so beautiful. I just want you to look at the, at the, at the father. I want you to look at this father and I want you to understand this father represents God. He got up and he went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him. How did his father see him from a long way off? Because his father went every single day to a certain place to look for his son. And you know what I was thinking about? You know the knoll where we go on Easter morning? When I get up there early, Chris Lazat and I will go up there early together usually, and I see people walking on the fire road up toward, you know, and it reminds me, that's what the, the father was on the, the knoll of the fire road. And he was looking down on the winding path and he sees a figure and he looks and it's his son. And he's been looking for his son virtually every single day because God is looking for you. Did you know that? You know God looks for you every single day? You know God loves you every single day, wherever you are? Do you know God searches you out, seeks you out, speaks to your heart, brings people into your lives, speaks to you in his word, comes to your heart in a song? God is always reaching out to you. God is a relational, loving, amazing father. This father is like God. This father is look, looking for his son. And he saw him and felt compassion. And what did he do? Did he wait for his son to get to the knoll? Did he wait for his son to reach him? The father tears down the mountain and runs toward his son. 
Did you, do you believe that? Do you believe that God runs to you sometimes? He runs after you sometimes? God does. He runs, uh, runs to him. He finally reaches him, and he embraces him. And you notice I wrote here, he kissed him again and again. You won't see that again and again in your, most of your Bibles, but the Greek text says he kissed him again and again. He kissed him all over his face and his neck, and he hugged him. He was emotional. I'm sure he was weeping. And he hadn't said one word to his boy yet. He didn't even know what his boy was going to say. He had no idea what was going to happen. All he knew was he was overwhelmed with his boy because he loved him just as he is. Now, probably the most famous thing I've said here in the 20 years or so I've been coming is this, and I'll say it again. God loves you on your worst day as much as he loves you on your best day. You will never be more loved by God than on your worst day. God will never love you more on your worst day than your best day. God will always be there for you. This is the reason I stand here. I stand here because of the unconditional, irrevocable, everlasting love of God. I stand here because I'm loved. I stand here because for a lot of years of my life, I look for love in all kinds of wrong places. I don't know about you, but I suspect that a bunch of you look for love in all the wrong places too, huh? You know, in Christianity, Christianity is a love story. It's a love story of God loving us, exactly as we are, with all of our failures, with all of our warts, with all of our mistakes, with all of our bad stuff, all of our emotions that, that are go wacky and crazy. God loves exactly as we are. I don't know who's messing up here this morning. I don't know who's hurting here this morning. I don't know who's struggling here this morning, but I do know that God's there, just like this father. And he wants to embrace you, and he wants to kiss you. He understands your pain. He understands your failure. He understands your loss. He understands the negative emotions. He understands your shame. He understands your guilt. He understands your wrong thinking. He understands you think of him wrong. He gets it. God gets it. And he still sets his love on you, and it never, ever changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is why I am here this morning. I stand here this morning because I have the opportunity, and I have had the opportunity for 46 years to stand in front of congregations and audiences and boast about the love of God. That's really my message. Jeff said to me, I don't know, a month or two ago, you know, Jay, you really, the bottom line of any message you give is God loves you. Yeah. And, and the, you know, that's the first thing you want to teach kid. Jesus loves me, kids. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And you can say, well, I've heard this a lot. I can't hear it enough. How about you? Can you, can you hear it too much? The powerful love of God set on your life and then will be with him forever and ever. So this father is hugging him, he's kissing him, and the son hasn't said anything, and finally he blurts out what he had rehearsed. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, quick, bring me the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Give him a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the fattened calf and let us eat and be merry. 
but the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and has been, and has been found. And they began to celebrate. So he does hear this, he does hear the son say to the father, I'm sorry in his own way. I'm sorry for what I've done and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And notice what the father doesn't do. Can you notice what the father doesn't do? He doesn't say like, could you explain yourself? He he, he didn't say, "Uh, can I have an apology? He didn't say, (laughs) why did you do this? How stupid are you? He, the the, the astonishing, thing, astonishing thing about this parable is what God doesn't say, is what the Father doesn't say. It's what he does. Uh, do you know actions are a lot, more, a lot better than words? And so the son barely gets his little confession out, and the father's yelling for the servants, go get the best robe in the house. I'm going to put it on him. Go find a ring. I'm going to stick it on his finger. Go find some new sandals. The poor kid didn't have sandals on his feet. Didn't have a ring on his finger. He was in tattered clothes. And the father just says, we've got to fix all of that. Then he says, find the finest, fattest calf we got, and we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a great time because my son, who was dead, is alive. He was lost, and he's been found. And they begin to celebrate. Now we come to the other brother, Next slide. And the older son was working in the fields, and as he returned home, he heard music and dancing. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. And the servant replied, your brother has come home, and your father killed the fattened calf, and we are celebrating his safe return. But the elder brother seethed with anger and would not go into the house. Then the father came out and pleaded with him to join the celebration. Next slide. But he replied, all these years I have served you and never once refused to do anything that you asked. But you have never given me as much as a goat to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returns after wasting his money on harlots, you kill a fattened calf for him. And the father said, my son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate, to feast and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now has been found. As I said a minute ago, this is a stunning parable. Not stunning that the younger son uh, became a prodigal, because as I said a little bit ago, virtually all of us have been a prodigal at one time or another. Isn't that true? All of us have gone our own way at one time or another. And the older brother, I get it. I get, I, I might have the same reaction. I don't know about you. But if I was faithful to my father and, and, and was there every day and worked hard and never had a celebration and the son comes home, I, I, I understand why he would be annoyed. So the issue is not the younger son becoming a prodigal or the older son's response. The issue is this, are you kidding me? Is the father like this really? Is God like this? Does God love us like this? Is God able to love us when we are at our stinkiest? It's not that God's able to, it's that God does love us like this. 
Now, I've got a question for you. If you had a son or a daughter, and they managed to finagle out of you a bunch of money, and wasted it in a debauched life, and came home, what would you say? Anybody? What would you say? Somebody tell me what you'd say. Well, it's about time. <laughs> it's about time. Any, anybody else want to say what you would say? For, what do you think you're doing here? So um, I've, got, I've got some responses that I ask people during the week here at the church. So the first one was just said, I love you. The second one, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> but the third one I really liked the most. I'm really glad to see you, but I'm not so sure your dad would be so happy. <laughs> Number four, I told you this would happen. Number five, I missed you, but I want an apology before you come home. Number six, don't expect anything else from me. <laughs> and last one, I'm just glad to have you back. I think probably all of us would say a little bit of some of this. <laughs> anyway, I just bookend the two with what, what I felt were, that were, were, I mean, all of those would be responses I could give. All of them that I could give. But God's response is, I love you, and I'm just glad to have you back. So this story resonates with me because I was a prodigal. For, and I think there's two ways to look at, the, at, the, at being a prodigal. I think is that there's the way that, that you and I, we live our life, uh, maybe growing up in a Christian family. We, we, we grew up in a Christian family. And then we reach that kind of rebellious stage. Maybe it's in high school or out of high school. And that was my story. I went to Catholic school when I was young in Orange at Holy Family School. And then I went to the Presbyterian Church in Tustin in high school. But then I got to a certain age and I just went my own way. And I had two brothers, my brother Bob and Carrie. They both, out of high school, went straight to college. And uh, Bob was successful. He had his own accounting firm after a year or two out of college. My younger brother, Kerry, became a dean at various universities in music. And I was kind of like, you know what I want to do out of high school? I just wanted to get a job. I wanted to rent an apartment. I wanted to buy a car. And I wanted to chase girls. That's what I wanted to do out of high school. So out of high school, I got a job and I got my first apartment right here in Babel Island. That's where I got my first apartment. And that's where I live. I see Bruce Ungerland nodding his head because he still has an apartment there, or owns one. And then I bought my first car I really loved. This was a 56 Chevy Nomad. Uh, I love that car. That car was like so, that car is $100,000 now for vintage car dealers. But that's the car I bought. And I cruised around with that car with the music on, music on really loud. And, and uh, I went from party to party, and I went from girl to girl, and I went from keg to keg, and, and at the same time, I kept hearing the Beatles sing songs about love. It seemed like every Beatles song was about love. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all you need is love, wah, 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 wah. Those songs. And, <laughs> and, and, I, and I kept looking for this love. I kept looking for this love. 
and I couldn't find this love. Like, what is love? Like, oh, I feel temporary, I feel pretty good for about 10 seconds. But where is this love? <laughs> Dan, could you put the prodigal father's picture back up for me? <laughs> not, <laughs> not the car. That, that guy right there, walking to Calvary Chapel in 1971, Chuck Smith was that man right there. And I walked into Calvary Chapel in the early days of Calvary Chapel, and there was a man there. He wasn't preaching like, you got to do this. You shouldn't do that. He was just saying, God loves you. God just flat out loves you. And the lights went on. Jesus died for you. He died for you that you could have life. He rose again to break the power of death so you would never have to die and you would live with God forever and ever. Chuck Smith looked like the prodigal son's father. And I said, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. And I, and, and I had parents that loved me. My dad called me about three months before he died, and he never said this to me. He called me and said, son, I love you. I just want you to know the first time he'd ever said it. 81 years old. Nikki, she had the best father ever. Nikki's father's name was Monroe. And he told Nikki day after day, Nikki, I just love you, I love you. And he'd ask her to dance with him. And he put Nikki, who was about three, four years old, on his shoes. And they would dan he would dance with her while she was standing on his shoes. And he would tell her over and over, my little butterball, I love you, I love you. <laughs> so I had little glimpses and little pictures of love. And then when I heard how much Jesus loves me, I'd come home. I was, I was the one that had come home. and The Father had received me. Now, I don't know where you are right here today. But I think for some of you, maybe for some of you, you've been away from God. And you can come to church every single week. You can come to church every single week. You can come to Bible studies during the week. You can like, do all kinds of stuff. And you can be a long ways away from God. And I'm speaking to myself. I feel like I've been away from God some. I don't quite know where I went. But I'm, as I've told you a lot of times when I've spoken, I speak to myself. I don't speak anything to you that I'm not speaking to myself. And I just want to go into the embrace of God this morning. I want to have him hold me and kiss my neck and kiss my cheek and tell me everything's fine. That's what I want to do today. And that's what I encourage you. I don't know where you are, but this would be a Sunday morning which you could say to God, you know what, God, I think I've been away some. Uh, I'd like to come home to you. So let's all stand. And uh, I'm going to ask if the ministry team and the elders would come down and uh, as we close, if, if you would like to just come up this morning and, and just uh, pray with someone and say, you know, I've, I've been a little bit away from God, or maybe I've been a long way away from God, or I'd just like to, I'd just like to like, renew, I'd like to renew my, 
commitment to Christ, or perhaps you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never said, Jesus, I believe you died for me, and I believe you rose again, and that you reign and rule in heaven today, and I want to give my life to you, and I want to be born of the Spirit, and I want to be your son or your daughter. You come down here after we close, and we'll pray for you. But God, we bless you this morning as we close this message. We thank you, God, for the picture of who you are so beautifully dramatized in this story and so clearly seen in this Father. We bless you, Lord. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you for your unconditional, amazing love that you do love us no matter who we are and no matter where we are. And that this morning, God, we can know your love. We can understand your mercy and grace. And God, that you can lift today all shame, guilt, self-condemnation, and any sense of disappointment that any of us carry. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son. We here, Lord, at Little Church by the Sea, we reconsecrate ourselves to you in a real, vibrant relationship, God. As a church, we say yes to you. We say, Lord, we love you, and we want to stay true and faithful. We want to fight the good fight. We want to stay the course. We want to keep the faith in the midst of a kind of crazy world these days that our focus could be on you and not on things going on around us. We love you, Lord. We love you because you first loved us.